0: If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 30. That can be found on page 950 of your pew Bibles. If you're not used to being at a Christian gathering, it's our custom to not only read it, but to, I will preach through it. So I would encourage you to open your Bible, to find yourself there, and to keep it open. Again, that's 950 of your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, please take that as our gift to you. This morning, we are slowly but surely moving out of the colder months. Spring is quickly approaching, summer after it. You can feel it in the air. Maybe not as much this morning, it's a little cooler. But it's becoming time for walks, for bike rides, for golfing, for parks, for barbecue, for gardening. Later, it'll be time for swimming, for the shell. For La Meech, Jerry's Snow Cones, it'll be glorious. And with the warmer months, come wedding season. It's like engaged couples finish their hibernating. They make their way to marriage altars all over the country. Many of us will find ourselves at weddings in the spring and summer. We'll hear these sacred and beautiful vows. In the name of God, I Blank, take you blank. To be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death. This is my solemn vow. The covenant commitment, it assumes that life will be up and down. Better or worse. It assumes you'll be up and down. Sickness and in health and yet the constant other than god the constant in the covenant commitment it's the commitment that you've made to one another you're promising to them that the only thing that will separate you is death and yet in our country close to 50% of marriages end in divorce 50% yes sometimes sadly because of sin Divorce seems to be the answer. That is the exception. More often, the worse, the poor, the sickness, we find it too much to bear. Many take vows or make the vows, but it seems like few meaningfully carry them out anymore. Why? Now, I've never been to a wedding and thought that the bride and groom were being disingenuous. Like, look at them up there, pretending. No, people generally understand themselves to be making a commitment for life. And then something happens. Life gets hard. Life with their spouse gets hard. They start thinking, my spouse is making life hard. And what felt like a genuine commitment at the time is revealed to only be wishful thinking. Divorce, in fact, is so common now. It's such a live option, even for those who've been married a long time. The one foolproof indicator a couple will make it to death, it seems, is when they've made it to death. It is the persevering attachment, the commitment through life's difficulties, that reveals love. You see, it's easy to be committed during the better, the richer, the healthy. It's pain that reveals what our promise is made of. This is true in any commitment. In marriage, it's true as you follow a sports team. In work, in friendship, it's certainly true in religion. Baptism into Christ, it's a bit like public conversion. It's a bit like a wedding vow. Only one that's more solemn and longer lasting. There are vows. At a baptism, we ask two questions. Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ? I have. And is it your intention to follow him all of your days? I do, and yet not all do. Why? Why do so many people make what appears to be a genuine commitment to Christ and fall away? Why do some, it seems, begin but not finish? More pressing, how do we make it to the end? John chapter 8, beginning in verse 30. If you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Chapter 8, beginning in verse 30, we'll go all the way through verse 59. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Jesus responded, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father, so then... You do what you have heard from your father. Our father is Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. We weren't born in sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. Because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father the devil and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, You do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen. Because you are not from God. The Jews responded to him, Aren't we right in saying you're a Samaritan and have a demon? I do not have a demon, Jesus answered. On the contrary, I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory, There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews responded, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you claim to be? If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say he is our God... He is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, you aren't yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. We start with what is axiomatic, what is obvious to us from experience. Many people profess to be Christians at some point in life, but not at death. Why? Why? Some people profess to be Christians even up to the point at death, but they never seem to be committed to Christ in life. Why? And then there are others who confess Christ, they love Him and His Word, and they do so from their decision up to death. Why the difference? This is our question this morning. What distinguishes genuine from superficial followers of Christ? It's like a question of the text. If you want something more simple, what distinguishes for real from phony Christians? What distinguishes genuine from superficial followers of Christ? We'll see four distinguishing characteristics or markers in the text. Four things that distinguish Jesus' disciples. Jesus' disciples persevere in the truth. Jesus' disciples obey the truth. Jesus' disciples listen to the truth, and Jesus' disciples marvel at the truth. Jesus' disciples persevere in the truth, obey the truth, listen to the truth, and marvel at it. Persevere, obey, listen, marvel. We start with Jesus' disciples persevere in the truth. We begin in verse 30. You can see there in the text, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, what exactly is Jesus been saying we've seen him he's there at the feast of tabernacles he makes two nearly unthinkable and yet unmistakable claims about himself two pronouncements that come with two promises let the one who thirsts for life come to the fount of life let the one who's stumbling in the darkness come to the source of light Israel your God and Messiah is here the time for waiting is over come come Believe, follow, feast. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now belief in the book of John is significant. We've seen so far, the one who believes, John 3.16, will not perish but have eternal life. The one who believes, John 5.24, will not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. The one who believes, John 6.35, will never be hungry or thirst again. The one who believes, John 6.40, will be raised upon the last day. The one who believes, John 7.38, will have streams of water flow deep within him. The one who believes, John 7.39, receives the Spirit. The one who believes, John 8.24, does not die in their sin. All of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ, and they come to those who believe upon him. They come to those not who work or pay, but to those who embrace Christ by faith. What work does God require of us? John 6, 29, that we believe in the one he has sent. Jesus here identifies himself as the answer to their prayers, as the fulfillment of their prophecy, as the object of the hope they confess. He's the answer to their soul's wanderings, the water for which they thirst, the food for which they hunger. He's the light that leads to heaven. Here I am simply believe. Verse 30, John tells us, many believed in him. Mission accomplished. Not gonna lie, I was feeling kind of shaky in the book of John up to this point. A lot of disconnect between Jesus and his people, be born again, what? Drink my water, where? Eat my flesh, why? But here, finally, it seems the Jews believe. Maybe. I actually know, as we'll see, now John has from the beginning showed us that professions of faith can be quite fickle. In terms that we understand it's easy to pray a prayer, it's difficult to pick up your cross. As Michael Lawrence puts it in his book, Conversion, there's a big difference between decisions and disciples, between being nice and being made new. John has been showing us this from the beginning in John chapter 2, verse 22. It says that many believed trusted in Jesus. And then John tells us, verse 24, Jesus didn't trust them because he knew them all. Jesus takes a look within and he doesn't see saving faith. John chapter 6, Jesus explains that he's bread come down from heaven to give life to the world. Simply believe. Believe in his bloodied flesh. The teaching is so hard, John 6, 66, that many of his disciples... Not the crowds, not even the leaders who've already denounced him. His disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Jesus knows both from experience and from looking inside man that professions of faith can be very fickle. Jesus wasn't caught off guard in John chapter 6 when his disciples, those professing faith, abandoned him. Why? Why? John 6, 64, Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe. Jesus knows that professing faith and possessing faith are two very different things, though they often for us look the same. One gives lip service to Jesus, the other clings to him for life. One says the right words, the other one believes them. They both look similar in the beginning and yet they end very differently both in life and after death so knowing this jesus gives his hearers a gift the words that we find here in this section of john chapter 8 are very difficult one commentator said it's the hardest text in john maybe in all the gospels jesus is giving his hearers a gift not cheap or meaningless assurance but a challenge that comes with a promise Verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, those who made professions, he says, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. Real disciples are distinguished by perseverance, not simply knowing the truth, but actually embracing the truth such that you continue in it to the end. If you continue, you're really disciples. Calvin writes, it's not enough for any to have begun well if their progress to the end does not correspond to it. Put differently, starting faith doesn't matter if there isn't finishing faith. This is because true saving faith is a persevering faith. Faith at the end reveals the faith in the beginning was real. Lack of faith at the end reveals what was there in the beginning was not. If you don't finish it actually demonstrates that you never really started. Like, sure, you had the jersey on, you had the sweatband on, you had your hyperdunks on, you were in the arena. You were not playing the game. You might have looked like you were, but you didn't. It's especially important for us to live in a culture that's been so Christianized historically. Someone can be baptized into a church, they can learn the lingo they can take on the name they can eat the meal and never have actually trusted jesus for salvation they looked like a christian for a time it's possible to confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and to not believe in your heart and that is a fatal disconnect one that only time will prove one that jesus knows here because he's god He's giving them the gift of a warning. Now, I want to be really clear about one thing as we talk about perseverance, continuing in the faith. It's not a condition for salvation. It's evidence of salvation. We're not saved by Christ and the strength or the length of our faith. Not saved by Christ and the strength or the length of our faith in him. No, Jesus accomplishes everything. He accomplishes everything in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. He offers us eternal life as a gift, period. It's a gift we receive by faith, period. In faith, we simply grab hold of Jesus, never to let go. And he ensures that we don't. Salvation is not Jesus plus perseverance. Salvation is Jesus, period. We receive him by faith. We accept him. We rely upon him in his work. Perseverance is simply continued acceptance and reliance. So it's not a condition for salvation, but it is evidence of it. Okay, not, we can say, the root of salvation, but its fruit. Meaning that when one really believes at the beginning, they'll still be believing at the end. There isn't another option. This is why our statement of faith says persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark. It is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. What our statement of faith understands, what Jesus understands in this text, is that many profess, not all persevere. Paul echoes this in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, as experienced in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy faultless and blameless before him if if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard Jesus is if and Paul's if are significance it's not enough to begin you must finish if you don't finish it demonstrates you never really began real disciples come to know the truth and continue in it What I think this means for us is that we should all possess a healthy dose of fear in our Christian race. This is not the fear that says, God will reject me. That as I stumble through life and I make it to the end, he's going to say, no. No, it's the fear that we will reject and despise him. We should cultivate in our own hearts a healthy distrust of our own flesh. A hatred of our sin. An understanding of our own weaknesses. Suspicion of our own foolish proclivities. We should know the lies that call to us from the darkness. The lusts that entice the old me. Brothers and sisters, are you aware of yours? Your old master certainly is. He will use all at his disposal to try to lure you away from Christ. Now, to be really clear, I want to keep making this caveat. This is not to say that salvation is works based. Paul reminds us, Philippians chapter 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Where there is no working out of salvation, God is not working in. Okay, make no mistake, our working follows his work, our faith follows his gift. Our conversion follows his regeneration. Our responding follows his drawing. The whole of salvation from beginning to middle to end is of God. It's a gift of God. This is why Jesus can say what we're hearing now and what he said in John 6. John six thirty-seven: everyone the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me will never cast out. 39, I will lose none of those he has given to me. Verse 40, everyone who sees the son and believes will have eternal life. All that the Father gives comes, all who see are raised, all the Son receives, He keeps, He loses, not a single one. Perseverance is a beautiful doctrine. Every chance I get, I read this part from our statement of faith, I'm going to do it again. We believe that those whom God has accepted in Christ, effectively called and sanctified by His Holy Spirit, will never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. That their perseverance depends not upon their will, but upon the immutability, that's the unchanging, decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with Him, and upon the Spirit's sealing and abiding presence, the guarantee of their inheritance. For those who believe in Jesus to not make it to heaven... God would have to stop being God. Our salvation is grounded in him. Christ will not lose one. Jesus can say all of that, and if you're really my disciples, you'll persevere. Again, because he knows salvation is rooted in God. Perseverance, faith that endures, proves that the Father gave you. It proves that the Son received you. It proves that you're truly believing in Him. Jesus will not lose one who looks to Him. I think this doctrine should do two things for us. One, it should comfort us. Salvation is a gift. We cannot lose what we did not give ourselves. Secondly, it should follow It should compel us to follow Jesus more closely. If we are in Christ right now, we will find ourselves walking with him at the end. This doctrine doesn't paralyze us, it pushes us to walk with Jesus more closely. Trustful of him, distrustful of ourselves. This is why we sing, let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. We're asking God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. All the more trustful of him and distrustful of ourselves. If we belong to him now, we will belong to him later. Time will reveal the truth. Jesus' disciples are distinguished by perseverance in the truth, and knowing and continuing. They're also distinguished by obedience to the truth. Jesus' disciples obey the truth. Okay, we just considered kind of the beginning and then ending of the Christian walk. We now think more specifically about the in-between. What distinguishes Christians? They're marked by obedience to the truth. Okay, so the crowds believe Jesus meets them with a challenge and a promise. Challenge, verse 31, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. Promise 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you Free. Jesus promises freedom. They respond, verse 33. We're descendants of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Notice the offer of freedom is meaningless to someone who already thinks they're free. We tend to think of slavery as a past, at least I'm guilty of this. It's very much a live thing today. To give you a point of reference, in 1860, there were four million African slaves in the US. It's a horrible and staggering number. Four million. In 2022, last year, there were an estimated 50 million slaves worldwide. Five zero. Now imagine going to some of these slaves today and offering them freedom out of freedom, out of a life of abuse and misery to be humanized for the first time. You sneak into a brothel, you tell the women and the girls, come be free. You sneak into a labor camp, you tell it's men and boys, come be free. They respond, free? Free from what? We work here. How can you free us if we're not slaves? You're taking it back because they're clearly enslaved and yet the offer of freedom is meaningless if you think yourself already free Jesus' hearers don't think they need any help and that's their problem they don't think they need help because verse 33 they say we're descendants of abraham we're not enslaved to anybody we're we're descendants of abraham now we saw this in our scripture reading you can see this in genesis 12 15 17 especially god made a covenant with abraham promising to make him into a great nation to bless all the nations of the earth through him he promises to be abraham's god and that abraham's offspring would be his people and so when jesus is offering them freedom they're like we're not enslaved they start singing father abraham had many sons many sons had father abraham i am one of them like jesus we we don't have a problem you should be preaching to rome People who think of themselves as free will find the offer of freedom at best meaningless, at worst, offensive. I don't need freeing. I don't need your gospel. I'm moral. I don't need freeing. I'm rich. I don't need freeing. I'm enlightened. I don't need freeing. I've already got a different religion. I don't need freeing. I only need to accept myself. It's a meaningless offer if you don't understand you're enslaved. Jesus doesn't have to wait to the end to show them that their freedom is false because Jesus' disciples are marked by obedience. Abraham's children are marked by obedience to the truth. His hearers are not. So they say, we don't have a problem. We're not slaves. Jesus responds, Truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You think you're free, but you're not because you sin." And when you sin, you prove yourself to be a slave. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Satan's great lie in the garden, one that we've fully embraced in modernism, is that you're most free when you free yourself from external constraints. Your family's rules, your culture's expectations, your government's laws, your religion's commands. Satan tells you that the things of God is slavery. It's when you free yourself from him that you're finally free. No doubt, parents, governments, cultures can be wrong. God is never wrong. His laws do not squelch joy. They do not constrain life. They do not crush creativity. When we can't obey them, they free us up to be truly human. Satan whispers back, no, you're actually free when you're sinning. Jesus says, that's bondage. Living in God's truth is freedom. Sinning is slavery. Brothers and sisters, grace does not say I'm free to sin. It says I've been freed not to sin. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is free from sin. The Christian ought to understand that we have been freed from the shackles of sin. We've been loosed from the pangs of death. We have been cut away from our old master who seeks to destroy us. We've been given new natures. We have a new king. We have new desires. We're finally free to be what God has made us to be, free from sin and to God. Okay, imagine you're there this modern slavery brothel or camp. You tell those enslaved, come with me and be free. They start following you. You're running. You're leaving. You look. Those leaving the brothel, they immediately join the next brothel. Okay, you leave one labor camp only to see them climbing a fence and joining another one. You yell at them, what are you doing? You're free. Yeah, we're, we're free to do whatever we want. This is what we want to do. No, 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 that's not freedom. you're enslaving yourself. Brothers and sisters, have you deceived yourself into thinking that sinning is freedom? When we especially habitually give ourselves to things like being enslaved to porn or being conquered by anger, by constantly giving ourselves to something like drunkenness, we might think I'm free. Jesus is saying, no, 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 you are voluntarily enslaving yourself to what I freed you from. You are choosing that which will destroy you. That's not freedom, it's bondage. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now to be clear, I don't think Jesus is saying that every time you sin, you become a slave, Satan's your master, you're constantly oscillating back and forth between two masters. For the Christian, when you sin, rather Jesus is saying you're acting like he's your master. You're acting once again like a slave. And for those with a lifetime of constant submission to Satan, without repentance, it reveals they were never free to actually begin with. Jesus's disciples obey the truth, which is simply to say that free people act like free people. Slaves act like slaves because it's all they can do. Jesus is going to continue to press into this slavery metaphor, now with the backdrop of the Abrahamic covenant. He's going to bring it into this. Verse 35, Jesus tells him, A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. Simply put, in their culture, slaves come and go in a household, but they're not part of the family. They're always on the outside. They always lack the full family rights. They don't have any hope of making it into the household by themselves. They find themselves in an almost hopeless situation. Augustine, the great North African bishop, he put it so well. He says, What is a slave to sin to do? To whom can he appeal? Before whom can he plead? Before whom can he ask to be sold? Then again, a slave, worn out by the harshness of his master's command, sometimes tries to run away. Augustine is saying that being a slave to a man, you find yourself in a nearly hopeless situation. There's at least the possibility of trying to run away. You might be able to get away with it. Even if it's a sliver of a chance, there's a chance. Okay, he says... Then again, a man slave, worn out by the harshness of a master's command, sometimes tries to run away. Where can the slave of sin run? Wherever he runs, he drags himself along with himself. Augustine is saying slavery is horrible. Slavery to sin is worse. You can't get away from it because you cannot get away from yourself. Everywhere you go, you drag the flesh with you. You need someone else to save you. It can't be another slave. It's got to be the son of the household. Jesus, verse 36 says So if the son sets you free, you will really be free. Who alone can set the sons free and make them sons? It had to be the divine son become man. In Christ, God took on the likeness of sinful flesh to pay the penalty of our sins and to free us from its consequences. It is as God himself hangs like a slave to die that he sets the slaves free. Only the son could do this. It's those who look upon him and trust in him who are freed. The son frees us and he gives us what's his, his household. Not just freedom from slavery, he gives us the family name. He gives us the family meal. He wraps us in all that is his His Sonship, His righteousness, His Spirit, His kingdom. The Son alone can do this. Luther put it so well when he wrote, Anything that is not God's Son will not make me free. Anything that is not God's Son will not make me free. Satan, our old master, will use all of his devices and power to promise you life and freedom where it cannot be found. Anything not named Jesus cannot give it to you. In fact, when you look to something other than Jesus for freedom, you're acting like a slave. Israel's problem is that they think we're the descendants of Abraham. We're in the household. We're good. Jesus is saying, "No, no, no, no. You're slaves. Because you're committed to sinning. What's that sin, verse 37? Murder and rejection of the Son. Do they believe? Not in any meaningful sense. You can't trust Christ and try to kill him at the same time. Jesus' disciples are distinguished by their obedience in the truth. They make it to the end. They obey in the middle. And here's why. Jesus' disciples listen to the truth. We come to our third distinguishing marker. Jesus' disciples listen to the truth. We listen to what we love. okay? Whether you post your Spotify wrapped or make fun of those who do. It's like an internet thing, I don't know. It tells the world what you like. It tells everybody what your appetite is for. Like If you hate heavy metal, it's not going to be your top ten most listened to songs of the year. Jesus' disciples listen to the truth because they have an appetite for it. It's because, we'll see, they're from God. Those who are not in Christ, they don't have an appetite for it. In fact, it repulses them. They hate it. They can't stand it. Jesus tells them in verse 37, you are trying to kill me because my word, the truth, it has no place among you. I speak what I've seen in the presence of the Father, so then you do what you have heard from your Father. And notice Jesus, he doesn't tell them who their Father is yet. He's just laying down this principle Generally speaking, we act like our dads. Jesus' father, he's the eternal father. Jesus, as his eternal son, he only does what he sees, he only says what he hears. Those who are adopted into his family now imitate him as well. Those who are not in God's household have a different father. Now they double down on Daddy Abraham, verse 39. Our father's Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But you're trying to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. Again, they think themselves children of Abraham in the most meaningful sense because they're physical descendants of him. We don't have time to look at it. You might read Galatians chapter 3 later this afternoon. There Paul explains... That God made a promise, promises that we hear in Genesis 12, 15, 17. God was making a promise to Abraham and to his offspring or seed, singular. God was making a promise to the two of them. Entrance into Abraham's family is not given by physical descent but by spiritual rebirth. It's as we're united to this singular offspring who is Christ that we become Abraham's children. We move from slave to child of the household. Jesus, the son, sets us free. So Paul says, Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then your Abraham's seed heirs according to the promise. In fact, Paul tells us in Galatians 3.7 that Abraham believed the same gospel message. Okay? He heard the truth, he received it as truth from God. What Jesus is saying, you're nothing like Abraham. You're hearing the truth and you're wanting to kill the one who's speaking it. You don't act anything like him he's not your father you're acting like a different father it's just not abe now this seems to really strike a nerve they respond we weren't born of sexual immorality it seems really random i think this is what's happening they're saying we're sons of abraham Jesus is saying no you're not we're sons of abraham no you're not we're sons of abraham no you're not they're saying well At least her mom didn't get pregnant before she was married. Yeah, we know about your miraculous birth. We have one father, God. Don't miss the irony. They think themselves closer to the father than the divine son based on something physical. Jesus responds to them, verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here How does Jesus know God isn't their father? They don't love the son. We often meet dads and we dislike their sons or the other way around. We think the apple fell far from the tree and it was a good thing. Human sonship doesn't guarantee similarity. The divine relations guaranteed something more than similarity. The father and son in heaven are of the same essence, the same whatness. The father and son are the same God. If you know and love God the Father, you will know and love God the Son. He is His perfect self expression. The Son in the flesh is God's perfect revelation of Himself in human form. It's like Jesus is telling them if God were your Father, you would accept me as brother. But you don't. It's because you hate the truth. Verse 43 You don't understand what I say because you cannot listen to my word. And then Jesus tells us why they can't listen. This is very important. Verse 47. The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen. Because you are not from God. They don't have appetite for the things of God because they themselves are not from God. It's not that Jesus has been unclear or confusing. It's not that Jesus is a bad communicator it's that Jesus' origin is so foreign to them, they find it not just unusual, but repulsive. They are repulsed by truth that comes from heaven. It's so foreign to them, they find it repulsive. Pavy, our five-year-old daughter, she loves to help me cook. The other day, we're making lunch. She's got this little like step stool she gets on. She wears an apron. She's got a big chef hat. It's just the cutest thing. She's, she has no idea what we're cooking. She's got her own little stuff she's doing. Uh, we made kimchi eggs with bacon on toast, sriracha mayo. It was amazing. If you don't know what kimchi is, it's a Korean dish. It's basically fermented cabbage and other vegetables with garlic, chili, ginger. It's really good. Pavi was very excited to help me cook. She was very disappointed when she saw the end product. <laughs> she's never had kimchi before. She immediately she does this thing. She got down like this. She moved like this the whole way to her room. And she made it back to the table. She had one bite. She's easily repulsed by food she's not used to. It's kind of like a classic toddler thing. She tried one bite. She hated it. We were trying to ask her to eat it. She hated the fact. We might as well have been asking her to eat our new puppy. Like she just couldn't believe you would put this in front of me, repulsed by it and by us. How heavy handed we are to feed her lunch. There are some foods that are so foreign to you, I don't care where you're from, they'd be so foreign to you that you have no appetite for them. That if you tried them, they would repulse you. Jesus says, I am from heaven, from above, from the Father, therefore I bring you truth. You can't stand it because you have no appetite for it. Why? Your palate, your desires, what comes naturally to you, they're not from heaven. They're from your Father, not God, not even Abraham. Jesus goes on, he explains the root of this, why they're repulsed by the truth. Verse 44 You are of your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. You act like your father. Your father is the murderer and the liar. Murderer and liar from the beginning. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. Satan accomplishes murder through deceit. He gets us to kill ourselves by believing his lies. What did God tell you? You would die if you ate this? No, 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 no. You'll actually become more like God. Go ahead, take a bite. Through one life, Satan brought death to every human who ever lived. His goal is to kill and destroy, and he does so through deceit. You, you won't see his mugshot anywhere for murderer. I've never seen him on the news. You see the people he deceives. Okay, he's not out dealing fentanyl. He's not out shooting people. He's telling us this is how you can really live. He's whispering, they deserve to die. He's feeding us what leads to our destruction. He kills by deceit. He hates the truth. And there's no truth that he hates more than the gospel. Because it frees us from his slavery and it keeps us from death. The one message Satan would love for us to keep silent is the one that proclaims his defeat and sets the captives free. It's the one message that keeps its hearers from dying. Satan's favorite evangelists are quiet ones because he hates the truth. He can't stand it. His followers can't stand it. Brothers and sisters, if you want to increase your love for God, you should spend time in God's word. If you want to cool your love for God, if you want to even foster animosity toward God, You should spend your time listening to Satan's lies. He whispers to us, you're free when you're far from him. You're really free when you do what you think is right. You're really free when you cast off his restraints. You're really free when you embrace the spirit of the world. No rights, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. To this, Jesus says bondage. Jesus offers us a sober warning. We can look like and talk like Abraham's children, but at the end of the day, we're going to do our daddy's desires. Here, as they're confronted with God himself, murder and hatred for the truth bubble to the surface. Okay, Jesus' disciples, we listen to the truth. We love the truth. We should hate what is false. And lastly, Jesus' disciples marvel at the truth. Jesus' disciples marvel at the truth. The Jews respond in verse 48. You can see it. Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? It's like the height of offense in their culture. A Samaritan with a demon. Jesus responds by denying it. And then Jesus is persistent in his mercy. He's offering them mercy. Verse 51, truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Never see death if you keep his word. Physical death for the Christian is just the doorway to life eternal with God. We will be raised with him at the resurrection. Now this confirms their suspicion. Jesus is a demon-possessed lunatic, never see death. They start listing the greats. They're like, Adam died, Abraham died, Moses died, David died, the prophets died. People listened to them and they died. Are you really telling us if we keep your word, we won't see death? 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Who do you claim to be? Two questions. Are you greater than Abraham? And who the heck do you think you are? More literally, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answers verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, you aren't yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Jesus responds, verse 58, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Verses 56 and 58, I think we get Jesus' clear self-identification in the book of John. And he's answering them really on two different registers. You might think of two different speakers, a right and left speaker, Register one. Right speaker. I'm doing this backwards. Trying to keep in mind. This is right for you. Right speaker. Abraham looked forward to my day. He looked forward to his seed, to the one who would bring blessing, the blessing of justification by faith to the nations. Jesus is telling them, I am Abraham's seed. He looked forward to me and rejoiced. That's register one. I am God's perfect human son. Here to fulfill his covenants with Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David. That. Alone is enough to make you drop your jaw. It's not what leads them to pick up stones. It's register two, the left speaker. Truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham, some 2,000 years ago, before he was, I am. Imagine sitting down with your friend to watch a movie. Some kind of like period piece, Prince of Egypt. At one point, they're like, oh, yeah, I remember this. You're like, you remember the movie? And they're just cracking up. They're like, yeah, that's what it was like. You're like, what do you mean? They're like, yeah, I remember that. You remember what? Like, you remember this movie? They're like, no, I was there. They're like, oh. <laughs> you start arguing with them because you think they're crazy. Okay? There's no arguing here because they know what Jesus is saying. It's unmistakable. Before Abraham was, I am not before Abraham was I was not before Abraham was I would be before Abraham was I am Jesus applies the personal name of Yahweh to himself that he gives to Moses in Exodus chapter three there is God is calling Moses and sending him to Israel Moses asks who who do I tell them that sent me God replies to Moses Exodus chapter three beginning in verse 14 I am who I am This is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Who am I, Moses? I am who I am. I am what I am. I am the unchanging, self-sufficient, timeless, boundless, covenant-keeping God of Israel, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You tell them I am sent you. Jesus, who are you? Are you greater than Abraham? Yeah, before Abraham was, I am. Only this time in sending a man in my stead, I have become one to save my people from slavery to sin. Here I am if you're thirsty, come and drink. Here I am if you're hungry, come and feast. Here I am. If you're in the darkness, step into my life. Who are you? I am Abraham's seed and God's son. I am who I am, and I am has become flesh. Behold the lengths to which our covenant keeping God would go to secure life and safety for us. Brothers and sisters, he came into the world knowing we'd reject him, he knew they'd pick up stones. The gospel is amazing. This is its message. You do not have to die in your sin because God already did. The great I am as man. The truth ought to make our hearts leap for joy. And yet it elicits such a different response in some who hate the truth. 59, they pick up stones. We saw this last time, but light reveals what's true. Light reveals what's true. You can think yourself a child of Abraham and of God, but by the end of your interaction with the Son of God, you're ready to kill him. Again, if you don't see your need for freedom, the offer will offend you. Verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. Like the glory of the Lord leaving the temple in Ezekiel, God flees that space once again as an act of judgment on Israel and its leaders. Notice the truth does different things to our hearts. Brothers and sisters, do you marvel at the truth? Do you rejoice at it? Does it make you glad like Abraham who looked forward to it? Do you want to obey and persevere in it? Just hearing the good news of the gospel that God became a man to save us from our self-imposed slavery and blindness, does it make you want to cling to Christ? Or does it make you want to drive him far from this place? Israel did. Many churches today have opted for the same thing. Jesus is telling them you're a slave to sin so that he can offer them the sweet promise, come to me and be saved come to me and be saved. Brothers and sisters, we ought to, above anything else, marvel at the truth that our God loves us such that he would come and hang like a slave for us. We ought to marvel. That ought to be our default posture as we think about the gospel. Our next song captures what we ought to marvel at. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life When the prince of life, our ransom, shed his precious blood. Here is love that conquered evil. Christ, the firstborn from the grave. Death has failed to be found equal to the life of him who saves. Here is love for all the ages. Radiant son of heaven, he stands calling home his father's children. Holding forth his wounded hands. Who is Jesus? He is our God. God become man treated like a slave to set us who were in slavery free. Knowing we would reject him. That's mercy. It's mercy upon mercy. Here is love. Let's pray and then sing. Father, we marvel at your matchless mercy and kindness to us in Christ that though we had no appetite for the things of heaven, that though in our flesh we hated you, that you sent your Son to become one of us, to pay the penalty of our sins on the cross, to raise from the dead that we might be freed by his death and his life. God, we pray that if any are in slavery to sin this day, that you would set them free, that your Spirit would fall upon them as he did upon us. God, I pray that we would be a people who love the truth, who obey the truth, who believe that the most freedom is found near you and your son. God, I pray that you would help us to marvel at who you are and what you've done for us, the undeserving. Help us to marvel even as we sing now. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.